Second Bananas is recorded on unceded indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. He's been squelched a bit, but yeah. yeah. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> oh, I've had three beers now. Like, this is going to be an interesting You ruined episode. my perfect segue of cheese. I'm sorry. I'm so- okay. <laughs> Yo, uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to Second Bananas, the podcast hi. where we talk about the clout behind the clout you didn't know about. It's been a while. You probably didn't know you about. You probably didn't know about. Um, you might, but you probably don't. I'm, of course, Joe Stillwell. I'm Wes Walcott. Hi. And I'm Craig. We are the hosts of your show. (laughs) We're going to basically talk to you about a figure in history who's been sort of like in someone else's shadow. Uh, And it's the 10th episode. It's the first non-revolver episode. The 10th episode. Milestone. Um, Big milestone. Nice. Well, uh, out the gate, right off the horn, (laughs) I have uh, an admission that my third act is going to be entirely derivative (laughs) and completely based off of perusal of media releases, stories, journalism, etc. about Garfunkel. Um, In much an anecdotal tone. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to... Actually, I intentionally didn't look into even either of your guys' sections. No, that's, uh, yeah, I didn't I, either. Well, I, and I think that's I great. Post, I didn't even post mine, so I know you guys didn't look into my section. That's yeah. awesome, yeah. Because I wanted to let the, the articles that I've read um, shape my opinion of this individual and and mm-hmm. his partner and the career and the after that big, their big kind of thing, everything. Yeah. So I think it's going to be really interesting, even just for me personally. <laughs> so but let's actually, to... let's talk about that. Sure. Like, what are you, I mean, like, there's such a big, like Simon and Garfunkel. We're talking about Arthur Garfunkel of Simon and Garfunkel, of course. Simon um, and Garfunkel. Uh, the, yeah. the, I guess, like, technically a backup singer, a harmony singer. Um, really, um, like, and yeah. also, but also like a main, like, that's something I really wanted because my section was really about them, Simon and Garfunkel working right. together. And something I really want to cool. talk about is, is, is that is how much, how key he was to Simon and Garfunkel versus like Paul Simon or Arthur Garfunkel and how, and how like, despite maybe yeah. seeming like the lesser or whatever, like without him, even though he wasn't like a songwriter or like, he didn't do as he, he didn't like I, I hard to put into words, but like he is so key to Simon and Garfunkel that like it's so yeah. fascinating to me. Um, uh, well, for sure. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I found it interesting that he's just uh, he is he's just a, a singer, too. And you always find it. 
I thought it was interesting that having been in or involved in music, like from such an early age and stuff that like he, yeah, he never, he never picked up an instrument, but his, his singing is great. Like, and is, I think, uh, a, a staple of the sixties. Like I think few singers, uh, even today, maybe, um, can, can compare to like some of like the harmonies and stuff that Garfunkel was pulling out. But I always find that interesting. Like when someone, um, kind of who who isn't the front man of like a big band like throughout his whole career uh can can you know make their career as a singer and, well, and, and a nothing. rare example of like i think there's a few other good ones that we should get to eventually but like a singer like because of the way modern music is like the singer is so essential to what we think of as like the front person or the lead the band leader. yeah and yet, yeah like, that's not always the case. And like, I like, and, and what's interesting to me though, is because he's a singer, like if he had, if he had only been like a songwriter or like an, an instrumentalist, right. he yeah. would not have been seen as, as the same way in the same way as I he think was so, because he was a singer. And I always thought he was a songwriter too, but it was Simon mm-hmm. that was really writing most of the songs and putting the lyrics to most of the melodies. But we'll get into yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, like, what was your guys's exposure to Simon and Garfunkel? Like, when did you first sort of become aware? I probably did. I couldn't pinpoint it, but I would probably say the first time I heard them would have been in like a road trip with my parents. And it was probably something like uh, it was probably Mrs. Robinson was probably the first song I heard of them. Right. My parents would have all kinds of like uh, cassette tapes that that they like to sing along to in the car. My mom loves to sing. And so Garfunkel uh, it is, is, is in her wheelhouse. And so that was probably my first exposure. It was probably in the early 90s on, on a road trip to Saskatchewan or somewhere. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. It, uh, it sounds very similar to my exposure. I think it was probably, you know, a tape um, in the car, in the vehicle with my grandparents or aunts and uncles or whatever, or on the radio, just catching, you know, whoever was driving would turn up the music for, you know, their various hits at the time. Um, at that stage, probably uh, would have been classics, <laughs> uh, but I didn't get in a vehicle until I was, you know, I, before I was 20 years old without it being on a classic rock station <laughs> probably yeah. growing up. And, um, and that was while, you know, while I wouldn't say that Simon and Garfunkel are classic rock, like the classics or even like a contemporary rock or contemporary music station is going to have them on rotation. Right. With yeah. all the singles kind of thing. Right. The, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. same folk gets mixed in there a lot with like the rock stuff. So, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I still hear it on all like the classic rock well, stations. And, and that's a whole like, thing of like folk music and rock music are just like um, you know derivatives of of various kinds of like folk music itself is like a fucking weird like the the term that gets used for like folk music as a like popular music genre is very different from what like is actually like folk music in the sort of like anthropological sense. Totally. In which case, hip hop is considered folk music. Well, most, yeah, and like that's the thing. It's like, yeah, but punk music is considered folk music. Um, um, I had I had a more recent exposure to Paul Simon, probably 
through like skate culture and there was um i think in the late 90s there was a skate video that came out the shorties video that was really big it was a huge a big deal at the time and there were at least two paul simon songs on that skate video and those were kind of tastemakers for like what kind of music was going on in the in the skate scene um hmm. in in part you know obviously we're talking about like the more what mainstream songs were they? Yeah, I'm interested. Um, they I'm were kind of both, interested. Yeah, Call yeah. They were both off of. Um, uh, they were both off of the album where he does a lot of like African. African. Yeah, it could be. Is that what Call Me Call Me Out on that one? I feel like it is. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it is. The, too. the solo has definitely got like a, a continental, an African continental vibe to it. But yeah, that, that's that, not that Christ visit some of uh, his more popular songs and even some of his less popular songs um, and kind of get into some of that. I don't admit to necessarily listening to either of them very much in more recent years, though. Well, I would say, so for me, my mom, I think like Simon and Garfunkel, especially when I was a kid, were like top five for my mom. Um, and I think it was also like partly because my dad would tolerate them. Like my dad is a jazz, <laughs> jazz guy <laughs> through and through. He fucking, he hates like, he hates like music and, and like classic like hard bop sixties, fifties, sixties era, like, like jazz when it had just come like really unanchored from pop music and become like a very like progressive genre and still anyway, um, yeah, my mom would play uh, Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits on the stereo all the time, and I just remember it sort of like being the first time that I like listened to something that my parents were playing, and really was like deeply affected by it. And I would say like I thought Mrs. Robinson was like a cute song, but like I think mm-hmm. like like the first time I heard um, like uh, Parsley Sage Rosemary and Time. Mm-hmm. Or um, wait, that, is that the album or the song? Uh, sorry, Parsley Sage. It's a uh, Scarborough Fair slash Canticle, which I'll get into. Yeah. But yeah, Scarborough Fair and then um, the Boxer. I think were like two songs that just like I was too young to understand what was going on, but they were like hitting me in a very deep emotional place and sort of like I'm still huh. a sucker for like soaring harmonies and sort of like almost like medieval music. Because those songs mm. are like, like especially like Scarborough Fair, because it's like chanters. a really old folk song, and the way they uh-huh. arrange it, and Garfunkel actually arranged that song, and we'll get into that more. Mm. Um, it's so like different from most of their, even most of their other work in that way, and I think like, yeah, it, it's so epic compared to, especially compared to like what Paul Simon writes. Um, right. That like I think it just like hit me really deeply, and like sort of became like a way that when I was like really deep into like, Oh, punk music's like the only good music. It's like, I don't like non heavy music. I don't like music without like distortion or overdrive. Like it kind of broke me back out and I was like, okay, well maybe there's some other good music. It's just like, there's other ways. Yeah. Yeah. And there's other ways of expressing emotion through music that don't necessarily have to come across as aggressive or anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or yeah. even like no, expressing no. anger or like um power i guess is a way of putting it because like 
Yeah, that yes. song is a powerful fucking song. Like, absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's a good word. Fox. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's just... So, I, yeah, I, I still I, to this day, like, I can't put... I can't put Scarborough Fair on without kind of, like, stopping what I'm doing and listening to it. And, like, it also... I think it's tied into memories of, like, being young with my mom and my dad sort of, like, sitting around the house in this, like, this sort of, like, mm-hmm. bubble of, like, in the early evenings or late afternoons, we'd sit and just listen to music and like my parents would tell me about where it came from and stuff. And like, I think that's, that's part of it, but like, it's just such a, a song that like grips me when I listen to it, that it's hard to not, it's, it's hard to not like just love that song. That's cool. I would say um, Mrs. Robinson is probably the standout, like definitive, you know, ev- evokes all of the memories and the nostalgia of car rides childhood road trips whatever um for me of of all of their catalog and that's probably obviously their biggest maybe one of their bigger hits too but nevertheless yeah Yeah, that's only i think the first song that at least that i enjoyed and heard from them um the one that i know my mom loved the most and was probably played the most in our house was was bridge over troubled water um, yeah, I don't. Uh, that's kind of sort of the capstone of my section, so I don't want to like. Well, yeah, let's, we don't let's need to get talk, into it. That's, um, that's probably just. A, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. So Arthur Ira Garfunkel, that's his full name, uh, born November fifth, nineteen forty-one, in Forest Hills, Queens. Uh, it's in New York. Sorry, um, he was the son of Rose Perlman and Jack Garfunkel, or Jacob. I think he went by Jacob, actually. Um, he was actually a traveling salesman. Uh, Art was the middle child. He had two brothers, uh, older's named Jules and the younger's named Jerome. Um, remember when you can support a family of like four or five <laughs> on a traveling salesman's salary? I mean, I don't. <laughs> But <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I don't remember that either. Because I didn't exist. But in steeped in. I, I remember it. I like to relive it through history like this. That so I know that that was a time that did exist. Yeah, it's almost shocking. I mean, also a, a white person could do that in that time. You know, <laughs> right? Right. Jules and Jerome, and his dad is named Jacob. Why did he get the name Art? It sounded like they had a J name going with the males in the family, but then uh, they were just like, okay, Art. It was Arthur. actually Arthur, so uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. There's no J in Arthur. Um, but it would have been satisfying. It, it does seem weird that <laughs> they just did the one. Yeah. <laughs> like, like maybe they weren't thinking about it, and this is we're just reading into this too much, or I'm just reading I know into this um, uh, there are like my, some, some people I know do, sometimes they'll do middle names too. I don't know what his middle name is. I, didn't know, I do kind of like, as, as when you're calling your children, I feel like it's easier if they have the same letter. I don't think it is because I have this issue where <laughs> I, the yeah. two, the two women I dated before Michelle, my wife, their names you, both wait. started with the same letter. And you had to call and, uh, them all out by name the at the same time. The latter one I would constantly call by the the one before her's name, and it really pissed her off. And like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't blame her. It was like I just like there's something about people like mm-hmm. I, 
if people's names start with the same letter, I will mix them up all the time. I, I find when you're calling like your girlfriend by the wrong name, that it's it's never gonna land. Yeah, it was a bad relationship. I was I was not a good person in my early twenties. So um, I, I don't think that was like the unforgivable sin, but I definitely think it was sort of like the cherry on top of the dumb shit I did when I was a twenty three year old. So it didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so um, Art's dad, Jacob, his parents originally immigrated to the United States uh, around uh, the 1900s, turn of the century, we'll say. Um, and uh, they settled in Manhattan. Uh, and before Jacob actually got into sales, he worked as an actor in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and so I didn't mention this before, but yes, Garfunkel is Jewish. His parents were Jewish. Um, his, his paternal grandparents immigrated from... Uh, Romania and his this is interesting his maternal cousin his his mom's name is Rose Perlman his maternal cousin is actually Lou Perlman who I don't know if you guys know who that is but Lou Perlman (laughs) was this media mogul and he's the founder of like NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys along with like a slew of other like 90s boy bands like LFO in a sense stole a bunch of their money too and O-Town, yeah, and he was disgraced, and and I think he died in jail uh, around 2015, 2016, I think it was 2016, uh, so yeah, he died behind bars in Florida, where he's serving like a 25-year sentence for like, basically... There's a lot of, yeah, there's like, a, I know like, I, 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 there's, there's a lot of like, Lou, Lou Perlman, or is it Lou Perlman, right, yeah. Like if you can think if, if think of what a racist would stereotype stereotypically think of a Jewish person, and and that's basically what Lou Perlman is. <laughs> he's, he's like he's like a, a record producer. He's like very fat, very pronounced nose, and ripped a bunch <laughs> of his clients off. Like it's just like like I don't, I'm. It's yeah. not his fault. I just like like when you think of like the I stereotype mean, of like. The, of right. the, the happy merchant like that's like lou perlman weirdly right. yeah. it's like whoa okay lou perlman because i had heard of lou perlman and i was like oh my god he's this art carfuckle's cousin well it just speaks <laughs> to like the the like the incestuousness of the record industry i think perhaps and like perhaps. how much yeah. easier it is if you have family in the industry it is to sort of get involved and like i don't like or just like that kind of stuff of like how like especially if you live in like new york in the 60s like for sure like i didn't hear any other mention of him because to be honest i don't know who got into the industry first um but according to the across america dvd uh like garfunkel kind of first like he loved music from like a very young age and uh so when his first kind of like um, quote from saying like how he like became to love music was when uh, in the first grade when they were lined up in order uh, and they had to kind of go out into the stairwells um, he noticed that his voice like kind of uh, it had better acoustics in the stairwell so he would go out and sing uh, like hits from the El- Everly Brothers like Unchained Melody or You'll Never Walk Alone um, and he noticed like he had like a nice singing voice so he would just like to go in there uh after class and and sing in the stairwell so like from a very young age he knew he had this like love of music and thought that he had like a a singing voice um and like to show it off 
yeah yeah and he very much liked to show it off because uh at his bar mitzvah um in 1950, 1954 he sang as Cantor, which is the the person of the your like the church choir uh sings the synagogue Thank with you. the synagogue sorry it's not the church the synagogue yeah <laughs> there are there are there Please. are cantors in both um uh, churches and like christian yeah. and jewish traditions and they're not they're not entirely different uh so yeah he is the cantor in the synagogue um and so at his bar mitzvah he performed uh over four hours of his like repertoire <laughs> wow. for his family all and friends right. like all right Joe, like, I, I don't know. I haven't been to a bar mitzvah, but is that typical? Like, no, no. I mean, do that? <laughs> I mean, there's the reading of the Torah, which is, is somewhat like there's specific sections mm -hmm. of the Torah that you have to read. And that's right. a, I mean, like a rhythmic chanting, but it's not like singing. And like, no, well, usually, I mean, modern, I, I don't know how much has changed since the 60s. Modern bar and bat mitzvahs are usually like, you go, you do the Torah part reading portion, and then you have right. like a party with all your friends. And right. that's usually like, and then yeah. there's often like a brunch after like the next day for the parents to all get together. Um, it depends right. on again, how much money you have and you know, how much money your friends have. Of course. Of course. Um, right. But um, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me because like usually part of the feature is sort of like either like praising the, the talents and sort of like, and in a way, sort of like railroading the child into like, this is what you should do when you grow up. Or like, <laughs> so it, it doesn't surprise me that if he was a singer, that that would happen at some point. It wouldn't happen necessarily in the actual, like the ceremony, but it might happen like at the after party or something, especially if it sounds yeah, like he okay, wanted to okay. be a singer. So, I think it's a celebration <laughs> of, the, of the boy becoming a man or yeah. whatever and right. i think that i yeah. think that's fine I mean, men, saying, that's men becoming wolves yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome but yeah. i mean if you've got pipes i guess you might yeah, as well four hours is a long fucking time i mean i only i only went to my cousin's bar mitzvahs because there was a girl i liked but you know i guess like it's it's interesting. Four four hours is a long, long fucking time, yeah. especially if it was in addition to all of the t reading of the Torah. So right, right. So Garfunkel can throw a bar mitzvah. Is what I'm getting. Totally, you can self entertain. <laughs> um, yeah. So so he knew he liked his singing voice, and and I, apparently a lot of other people did. If he's apparently the cantor at the synagogue at at uh at like age 12 or 13. So it wasn't it wasn't until uh, middle school in Forest Hills, New York, where he met uh, his classmate, Simon, of Simon and Garfunkel, um, <laughs> in case you're wondering. And so, so they met while they were preparing for their sixth grade uh, play, which was Alice in Wonderland. So I just want to say, I don't know, have you guys seen their like reunion tour DVD? I haven't seen the DVD, but I know of like the singing in the park or what it, what is it called? I can't remember what it's called, but like, so the whole thing is that the, I, this is a great story and it, it really highlights like the reason that they don't fucking get along. But like the yeah. funny thing is they, they tell this story on stage in a way that is clearly like Simon, like, like fucking like pissing, like, like marking his fucking territory 
and like you can see on Garfunkel's face how like he's just like whatever and they they recount this story with all of this so yeah I, i'm just excited to hear it and like just if you watch <laughs> yeah. I can't, it was like around the time i just graduated high school that they did a reunion tour and they do yeah. this story on the tour dvd and it's like brutal so yeah Anyway, <laughs> I feel like I and I feel I did read multiple accounts of this, and I went with this one because this they, one all straddled of their the stories line. have changed <laughs> over the years. That's something I'm going to get yeah. into in my section. So. It's it's so interesting, like because I watching at least in the interviews I read with Garfunkel, you can see the interviewers like kind of trying to bait them into bad mouthing the other, and yes. actually Garfunkel Big Garfunkel time. actually doesn't fall for it. I like I like respected him because I was like, wow, he's really baiting you into like trying to say something negative about Simon and you're not going for it. And kudos to you for that. Uh, well, um, from my perspective, I was heavily exposed to a lot of that reading only yeah. like media interviews and, um, and articles about them from the later part of art's life. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like that's a that seems like a big cross-section of what he did in his later years was yeah. talk or avoid talking about yeah and um, it's, it's, and him. it's true because <laughs> in most interviews he's just like and you can tell like you can tell in these even though they're just written interviews you can tell when they're like they keep pressing on it and he's yeah. just like i think we should move on or like whatever totally, yeah. totally. <laughs> so we should, we should get to the story because it's like such a it's such a like a clearly yeah. like, like ultimately like mythologized story but it so indicates like their relationship and like the way ah, go on well i i mean I, so this probably just tells the both both sides of both their stories but yeah so uh they're they're doing their sixth grade play alice in wonderland garfunkel's the cheshire cat simon's cast is the white rabbit and after rehearsals according to this rendition uh the two walked home together and they would like discuss their mutual interests things like sports music uh yeah the type of music they're into um they were both fans of like the 50s rock and rollers of the time like your elvis presley your comets frankie lehman is it lyman or lehman i don't I know. listen to it but but yeah lyman. um lyman okay frankie lyman yeah and so they, would, they would listen to these guys on the radio and um they would start trying to like kind of dabble in in composing their own music and then they would start like practicing and singing together uh because simon could play acoustic guitar um at this point and so he would uh garfunkel would sing while simon would play guitar and after practicing for a bit they are like okay we're pretty good and they started performing at uh school functions and parties uh and they even uh i think simon and garfunkel pooled their money and they they got enough together to do uh uh, a demonstration record that caught the attention of big records which was uh a recording company and so they offered them a contract so i guess what i was what i was getting at with this tour dvd story is the way they tell that story is that simon points out to garfunkel that the cheshire cat is a supporting role but a very important supporting role or it's, it's a supporting <laughs> right. role it's a very important role but it's a supporting role nonetheless and they repeat that on the tour dvd on stage as like a bit of theater um, Wait a minute. It is. It's fucking brutal, man. But it is. It's like. Wait a minute. I, it's funny. Okay. Well, that, no, actually, that reminds me to an interview I read. So on that tour, on that reunion tour, 
they had bits that they would do like kind of before their show. This and is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. And they would try and do a bit of comedy where they would like kind of try to warm up the crowd. And some of it was like meant to be taken sarcastically, but the crowd did not take it sarcastically at all. And there was just dead silence. And it so was, I'm wondering if tell, that might've been one of those moments. It's probably that know. because it feels, it feels very uncomfortable and it's, yeah. and it's very like it, it, but it didn't, it was, not, I did not take it at all like tongue-in-cheek or sarcastic it, it, it could have just been simon like yeah exactly like you said marking his territory um but it's, yeah but i mean yeah on stage flex what is the, yeah. what is the function of humor you guys you know <laughs> um yeah so they get this record uh offer um simon and garfunkel decide they're going to record under the name tom and jerry tom landis and jerry graff um, and this is because they fear that their their real names uh, sound sounded too Jewish and might hamper their success. Just sad, but uh, sad the true, especially at the time. Like this was like yeah. this wasn't even the sixties. This was like the fifties. Yeah, this is in this is in the mid fifties, mid to late fifties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as a young teen, then uh, so Garfunkel he he got a he contracted like a lung infection. Um, which hampered his singing voice, so he wasn't he wasn't able to sing as well. So he explained in an uh, interview in 1998 that in the summer of 55 he got this lung infection. I couldn't run around. I couldn't run around, but I loved basketball, and there was a hoop nearby. And so in that summer of 55, he spent most of his days, uh, you know, just nailing foul shots, and he could make like you know he could make like 90 percent of his foul shots. If he shot 100, he'd make like 95 foul nice. shots. Out of and so Who, who's telling this story now like this, this is god uncle man this is like something that i keep coming back to with a lot of these stories is like yeah a, like, you said, like they've they've both told their own versions of these stories they've both changed them over the years like like obviously some of this is just like the faultiness of memory but it's also like th- these guys did yeah. a lot of mythologizing and sort of like adjusting their career their stories and cur- stories of their lives and careers to make them this sort of like like just so of like of course we were destined to be this way you know it's interesting this is is a this is an observation from my side that it does seem as though at least some part of these people's relationship with each other and the outside world is basically impossible to distinguish from like a pr campaign <laughs> they're just trying Big to time. get they're trying to get jabs in on each other or they're trying to get like big ups in on themselves like humble brags <laughs> you know what i mean like um, no big deal but i fucking yeah, made yeah, yeah, exactly. 90 yeah. out of 100 foul shots when totally. I was and like oh so, you know speaking as the one who wrote this song or you know something like that or like if i may like i have a great story you know i don't want to hog the microphone or anything but i have a great story for this interview right now <laughs> and you're kind of like all right <laughs> well and it's like when you become a performer like that and most of your life is spent in the spot like i think this is more true of paul simon like paul simon is 100 yeah. an entertainer and a performer and a guy who is like i wonder if he's not more comfortable performing than just being himself you know yes. in that sense i and think like, he probably he's well, he, like, yeah. like there, there's a reason he's sort of like got a lot more like in terms of like and i don't think it's just due to talent i think i think part of his talent is really being 
a performer and 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 being sort of like able to 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 play a version of himself that appeals to his audience right. um more and garfunkel i think specifically kind of kicks against that a lot that's something we can kind of talk about and he also is like a guy who wants more privacy i don't i think Gar, like i think simon is is really addicted to fame in a way that garfunkel is not uh, yeah. yeah i see, I see that too a bit yeah, Garfunkel grapples with his persona yeah. as opposed to Simon who embraces his persona. Yeah. So sorry, Wes, you were saying totally. about the free throws. Oh, no, I was just like, fucking like, yeah, he's drilling these free throws. Um, he never played like junior varsity ball or anything, but it said like during those like few years while his like his lungs were healing, he played like tons of like half court pickup games on the schoolyard. And I was just like, whoa, fucking, I just want to. I kind of want the timeline where Garfunkel didn't become a singer and he went the basketball <laughs> route. <laughs> totally. I just like picture Garfunkel as this like Woody Harrelson like guy chasing his hoop dreams, and he's just like fucking gritty and hard up in his luck and like playing street ball to fucking <laughs> score cash to buy Rosie Perez an engagement ring. Really. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> like, or as Larry Bird and the top of his game and in the upper echelon. Yeah, man. Well, Jesus, like, tall guy. It's funny that you mentioned hoop dreams because like Garf like my section has a bit about Garfunkel being an actor too. So like, yeah, like, yeah totally. there's so many other timelines for him. Yeah, for sure, for sure. For sure. That's uh, a really good subject. Yeah. So Garfunkel, yeah, he's just draining him, um, but eventually his his lungs heal and his voice does come back and he he and simon start uh writing some some like pretty catchy teenage rock and roll tunes as the duo tom and jerry um and they get their first hit single with the song hey schoolgirl which uh is a great title in my opinion <laughs> which would not would not sell today <laughs> It's, it might it doesn't have it doesn't have the uh, the same Although same ring to it the Bieber classics um, like baby 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 or whatever I mean it's there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's slamming so this is this is all by the time they were just fifteen so they've got they've already got a hit single and they're just fifteen way to go Simon and Garfunkel you're killing it and so two years later also the song uh, is much less creepy if they're only fifteen. <laughs> That's true, yeah, right? Absolutely. Talk about schoolgirls all it's you want. That's right. It's different when it's an R. Kelly remix or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The go. R. Kelly remix of Tom and Jerry's <laughs> Hey Schoolgirl. Right. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, hopefully not. So two years later, when they're both 17, um, sadly, Big Records folds and they a don't have a label, label anymore. Fold? What? Their, record, their record label folded, and this is right around the time they're both going to, like, finishing high school, so they're very much like, well, do we both go to college? Do we try to pursue a record career? And since, like, it didn't, they didn't really have the doors for them at the time, they both decided to kind of go their separate ways. And so Simon, uh, uh, sorry, Garfunkel stays closer to home, and he attends Columbia University. Um, where he studies art history, he joins a fraternity. <laughs> Garfunkel's a frat boy, yeah. And, <laughs> and he he actually he earns a master's degree in math at Columbia, um, which is cool. So it's totally. smart, smart dude. 
And just as he would continue his academic work throughout his career, Garfunkel also continues singing. He's like developing his voice, developing his harmonies, and uh, really kind of also progressing his singing career throughout this time. And he releases a handful of solo tracks um, under the name Artie Gar, while he's also kind of becoming more ensconced in the growing like folk scene that's kind of happening in, in the U.S. at the time. And so that's kind of what brings him back together with Paul Simon is that uh, they they kind of like both have been developing their their music careers like throughout this time, and um, they're kind of they're actually now more kind of aware of the kind of like you know social issues that are there, and so um, kind of when they get back together now they're they're less uh, they feel less you know tied to maybe. Uh, social norms of the time uh, when they uh, came up with Tom and Jerry. So when they get back together, they are Simon and Garfunkel. Um, I wonder how, I wonder how sincere the, the, the the interest in folk music was on both their parts. Like Mm -hmm. um, we'll kind of get into it, but it, it, I think in a certain way it appealed to them in the sense of like, especially uh, Simon just writing his own songs on an acoustic guitar was definitely something, but like, like I wonder if like if like folk music hadn't been a thing like if Paul Simon would have just picked up you know rock and roll or if he'd been born in the eighties he would have picked up like new wave or whatever right it's interesting yeah yeah it is um, wait I have a, I have a tidbit here okay so we have the frat that alpha that frat that Garfunkel joined I've got it here is Alpha Epsilon Pi in case anyone. Is still part of that frat, or wasn't you know, that the one? Wasn't that the one that was like got in trouble for hazing? It might have been. I feels like that could be any frat, but we'll say it is. <laughs> Holy whoa! He was also a member of his tennis, skiing, and fencing oh, club. Like like the, like Simon and Garfunkel are the two waspiest Jews I have ever Holy seen. Holy shit, man! Did anybody know Garfunkel was so athletic? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, that's impressive. That's why he's that's no bowling. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he's he's quite tall though. He's yeah, got, he's he got a pretty. Yeah. And he's got the fruit. He's got the fro. He's got I mean, the fruit. He does. The fruit. The fro. I wish very, he had his own basketball game. Yeah, I'm very, very intimidating on the court. All your dreams. God damn it, <laughs> all your hoop dreams next time. Dude, right? Should have been a tennis slash. Should have pulled right. on MJ and then. Played basketball real good and then played tennis real bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's pretty much what I have for Garfunkel's early years before reconnecting with Paul Simon. Yeah, um, they reunite. Um, so it's funny that you mentioned that they were they went under different names because even when they first started performing as a duo that would play Simon and Garfunkel's songs, their initial name was Kane and Gar. Really, and they started I playing. In, so they'd play Let's basically in Greenwich Village at like like you know all the places that the folk performers would play. Um, uh-huh. And what's funny is, I guess so. Dave Van Ronk said in his biography that they were kind of a joke to the rest of the folk scene, and it got to the point where like it was kind of a, a an inside joke that someone would start singing like "Hello Darkness, My Old Friend," and everyone would start laughing. And I think it, it's interesting because it speaks to a like, um, just how big the folk scene was compared to sort of what's remembered as the folk scene. 
Um, and, and like, and like how every music scene is full of like bullshit drama where people don't like each other, but also, and egos and outgroups and yeah. yeah. And like, and I think that was what I was talking about. It's like that they had kind of come to folk music sort of after it had already kind of like not completely blown up, but it had already become like a sort of like underground thing that people were talking about. And that like, like, you know, like, uh, you know, like at the very least, like alternative music magazines, which had just kind of come into existence, had started talking about, right? Right. Um, so I think they were kind of seen as sort of bandwagon hoppers, um, okay. at least by Dave Van Ronk, who was like, "This is before they were even Tom and Jerry, though." No, this was no, this was this was nineteen sixties, like early nineteen sixties. Oh, okay. So before they were Simon and Garfunkel, they were Kane and Gar, and then they became Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, okay. It's not exactly uh, clear when all that happened, but. Um, around the 1963, they performed a few songs, including The Sound of Silence, and uh, they got the attention of a record producer called Tom Wilson, who is a guy who I think we'll have to do an episode on eventually. He's actually a black music producer who was kind of a mastermind um, behind a ton of acts. Like, I think if you look at his Wikipedia page, like, he worked with Bob Dylan, Frank Zappa. Velvet Underground, Sun Ra, Nico, uh, nice. like, like he's, he's clearly like the guy, I think his real talent was like finding scenes and then finding the sort of act in the scene he knew he could sell. Um, and he was black. So that was really interesting. Like he, in the sixties and seventies was sort of yeah, like, the talent was scout, like, yeah. Um, yeah. so, um, he discovered them and he kind of can, he kind of, brought them into Columbia Records. And Simon was like, get us a studio audition. And he did it. And they performed The Sound of Silence, and that's what got them signed to Columbia. So that's a big deal. I mean... That's huge. um, So they... What's interesting, though, is so they record their first album Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., all I can think of is like the Ninja Turtles, like Big Apple, 3 a.m. Like all I can think of is Wednesday oh morning, 3 a.m. Every time, time. Every time. <laughs> like, um, that resonates with me. I yeah. love that game. Um, <laughs> oh, I, that's, that game ate up too much of my childhood. So they, they, they basically like decided at this point, like, well, it's a stripped down, simple folk rock thing. So Simon was just like, let's just use our real names. Um, so they're brought into the studio and they meet this engineer, Roy, it's either Hallie or Haley. I don't know, but he basically worked with them throughout their entire careers, engineered all their albums. And he was the one that basically figured out the reason their harmonies were so, uh, really come through on the recording is they'd make them, he'd make them sing into the same microphone. Mm. Um, so they recorded, um, this first album, which had, Sound of Silence as the single. Didn't sell. Um, Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan had just kind of switched to electric. So folk music was kind of seen as like, meh, whatever. And they broke up. They basically were like, yeah, whatever. And Simon Paul basically goes to England, which I think is like a classic Paul Simon move. Is like, like, just like, oh, that didn't work. I'm going to Europe. I'm going to travel and learn. And, um, and then interestingly, like, um, art, art also was traveling and performing mostly in Europe. 
Um, but what happened was they broke up and Tom Wilson didn't really tell them this, but he, he had Columbia records classify them as a non-working entity. So he wouldn't have to tell them what he was doing. And he made him, mm-hmm. a, he, 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 he brought in session, yeah, <laughs> he brought in <laughs> session musicians and did an electric version of sound of silence. And that's what got them on the charts. Right. It was the electric version, which like most people yeah, know this. the electric version. And what he basically did was he just cranked up the reverb on the electric guitar right. and made it really yeah. haunting. And yeah. like this, the acoustic one is good, but like I think the electric does really add like a otherworldliness to the song. Right. And that's the one everyone's familiar and with. And that's the that that was their breakout song. And it, it topped number one in 1965. And they both have completely different stories. Uh, according to Simon, they were in Queens smoking a joint in his car and they heard it on the radio. Mm. And according to Art, I'm just going to read what he said. We were in L.A. So already they're talking about being on different coasts. <laughs> uh, our manager and, and, and Simon's version, it's like, oh, we heard it on the radio. Like, we just kind of were like, what the fuck? Um, in Art's version, like their manager called them. They were in a hotel. They were both in the same room. We must have bunked in the same room those days. Like, okay, well, okay, Art, whatever. Um, and he, he picked up the phone and it's like, congratulations. Next week you'll go from five to one on Billboard. It was fun. <laughs> I remember pulling open the curtains and letting the brilliant sun come into this very red room, then ordering room service. That was good. <laughs> he qualifies it with all these other details so like yeah. you know his story is right yeah. but you know what i don't believe simon's story because oh it's too this perfect is... right it's too like and i'm just yeah. a, i'm just a boy from queens like me and yeah exactly it reminds me a little bit of another story that he told uh because when they were first getting doing like their first show together, their first on-air appearance when they were still Tom and Jerry. Uh, I forget the name of the show they're on. It was like this big, like, you know, top like 50, like hits show in the States. And they were going on that and they were being introduced and the, the MC or whatever, like asks them where they're from. And Garfunkel is like, oh yeah, I'm like uh, from Queens or whatever. And just says where he's from. And, and Simon just says, he's like, he doesn't even give his right name. He says, he gives a fake name and says he's from like... Georgia, so he can like kind of like create this like southern persona he's, around himself. He's such like, a guy yeah. who just like like this is the thing I noticed. Like he went to England and he absorbed all this like English classic folk and kind of like plays it off as his own. And yeah, it's the same thing right. with like the world music, right? It's like oh, I was the first artist to like to do yeah. to bring yeah. world music to pop music. Careful, like, well, everyone. Yeah. No, you weren't. Like, in Africa. Like yeah, and. So I, <laughs> so i mean i think like to be fair like obviously we're partial to to garfunkel for various reasons but like sure just, like and and like i think like paul simon is like a really great songwriter i think he oh, is, so he's amazing he's great, even his new stuff i like some of his new stuff like better than I, like stuff that came out like 20 years ago i just don't i don't i don't like his i don't i i, I think that he's never done anything quite as like th- like going back to what like how dave van ronk was saying they were all making fun of him like I think in, in a certain way, because they were doing like this folk rock that wasn't very political and was very sort of introspective, which like the stuff that survived is actually more that stuff. Like even Bob Dylan sort of like didn't like his earlier political work and the stuff that sort of stuck around. And, and not that that's like, 
I don't think that's an indictment of like intensely political folk music. I think it was needed at the time and it said a lot of things that were not being said, but like, of course the stuff that's like, that's why I think Simon and Garfunkel sort of survived is even Mrs. Robinson is sort of like, it captures a moment in time, but it like, it lets you look back on that moment from the present. And a lot of their other songs are so um, not, not set in the sixties in the way a lot of folk music. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, I don't know. Anyway, Paul Simon is like a good songwriter. Uh, made, like the best stuff he made was, in my opinion, with Garfunkel. So, yeah, that's just, yeah totally. But... I had um, an interesting observation on that because it really seemed to me that Garfunkel viewed Paul Simon as a co-creator, a co-performer, like a fellow artist, and. Paul Simon viewed Art Garfunkel as like an engineer, an instrument, exactly, a component that could be traded out, and would would you know he would be able to equally uh, be equally successful as Paul Simon without you know without yeah. this individual and somebody else in their in their place doing the same thing equally as effective or potentially there's equal potential maybe even better um well, and and so, to me that is like 90 percent paul simon's ego totally and but i also felt like the impact that having partnered in such a profound way well and that's the thing it's like once you can write your own ticket i think like I, I have a lot of theories on collaboration and like working with other artists and stuff like that. And I do think like ultimately like submitting to a collaboration and not always getting your way makes, makes it like there's a power in that, that like, I think that doesn't mean that it's going to stay or like, it's always going to produce the best possible work, but I think it's always going to bring another perspective, which is really helpful in making something more, uh, classic or eternal or like something that Elevate, really still elevating it. Elevating. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. So, yeah. uh, absolutely. I completely agree. I completely agree. And that's the problem with ego is that it gets in your way. And this happens when you're collaborating with yourself. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? I was part of what, and I don't want to turn this into like a hokey direction or whatever, but the idea of like mindfulness and whatever, just actually getting out of your own fucking way. <laughs> and I, I very much was struck by how much Garfunkel seems to be in his own way about fucking getting everyone past the Paul Simon thing. Okay. So much so that he's, he's like overcompensating and falling over himself. And it's like, dude, just be yourself. Like you're cool, man, but you're coming across a little bit heavy handed because yeah, but but it's also the media and just the way that we treat celebrity and, and there's like, a big piece there about the impact of celebrity on an individual and, and the, a foil the wanting that, of that like narrative of the drama and that they're like because I think like to be honest like they clearly like love each other like in a way like, like oh, they completely. know each other so well and the way they talk about each other it's clear like you know there's, some like there's almost even when Simon level. says stuff that's like like one of them both of them have said stuff that's kind of like disparaging or critical but it's like you can tell that they know each other like they just know each other so well and it comes from a place of like just being Mm. able to be like that and i think that's why like they did work together as as well as they did because they could be like that with each other and just be like i think you're kind of being like a fucking like 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 garfunkel could say like dude i think you're just being an egomaniac here 
And then I think like Simon could say like, dude, I think you're just being a perfectionist here. And like, it's good enough. We can move on. Like, so that's, and again, like, so, um, so they kind of, so basically when they, they, the sound of silence became a number one hit, they were brought back to the U S they hurried back into the studio. And at the time it was very common for like artists to put out two albums a year. It was just totally normal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they felt really like they 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 took the electric version of Sounds of Silence, Sound of Silence, the Sound of Silence, and they recorded an album called Sounds of Silence, which they were a lot of them were songs that Simon had released as a solo called in a, an album called the Paul Simon Songbook, and he said like those aren't songs I would write today, which like I think is very interesting because I think. What I admire about Paul Simon is he's he's always moving on to the next thing. I think like I think mm. like that's that's kind of like I admire like I think he's an artist who's never just satisfied yeah. with what he did yesterday. It's true. And that's sort His of like music's the, not very static. It is very evolving and changing and, over and time. Like, and like I don't love all his music, but I appreciate that he's that kind of artist. And like I would rather see more of that kind of artist in the world than like someone who just wants to play the you know, like the same song over and over again, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically did this album and they didn't love it. And, and really like Paul was sort of like not only writing all the songs, but sort of like making all the demands in the studio. And like right from the get go, he knew what he wanted. And art was really just more like, yeah, man, like let's just figure it out. So yeah. they drops uh, um, sounds of silence. I am a rock, which is like number three on the charts. I think it's a good song, but I think it's also very like, ironic because that song was clearly something that simon wrote on his own um and like it's it's weird to have a duo sing a song about being like a hermit yeah um so they kind of like disown that album and then they really like take their time on their next album which is parsley sage rosemary and time um it took three months which was like really extremely long for the time and it cost Three months is long. That's a long time for an it's album for, record, in, in, for, for recording. Yes, not, for shooting a recording time. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah, it costs thirty thousand dollars, which today adjusted for inflation would be two hundred thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> so like yeah. they and and the reason for that is because Simon kind of was just like, no, we are in control. Like he needed it to be all his album, and that's again like right. I mean I think like clearly like that's where Scarborough Fair is on. And that's like, yeah. And what's fascinating is that is one of Paul Simon's only songwriting credits. Paul Simon or Art Garfunkel's? Art Garfunkel's. Sorry, is one of uh, Art Garfunkel's only songwriting credits. And what he did was he took a song from Paul Simon's solo album called The Side of a Hill and reworked it. Reworked the melody a bit, just a bit. And then... And that's the reason, like, there's the dual vocals, and there's actually two melodies. There's a melody and a counter melody, and they're telling different stories as well. So Scarborough Fair is like a traditional folk song where it's basically this singer saying, like, oh, I lost my love, and, like, she's at Scarborough Fair. Um, tell her if she wants me back. Or it's it's unclear whether the, the, the man is supposed to do these to get the woman back or the woman is supposed to get the man back, but they're essentially a set of impossible tasks which is like um the shirt a shirt with no seams which at the time like at the time of the writing of the song is impossible um 
the song Side of a Hill is like an anti-war song that uses almost like a King Arthur metaphor of like a boy sitting on the side of a hill waiting for trumpets to blast. And I just think it's interesting of like that sort of like that cross-section of both like the anti-war um, peace hippie movement of the 60s contrasted with this sort of like impossibly lost but still sought after love. Um, they don't, they don't seem to go together, but I think that like the more you think about it, the more it's like, just like this beautiful, weird mix of like, almost like a lost innocence in both cases of like talking about war and the way you lose your innocence in war, plus the lost innocence of like, yeah, when you love someone and you break their heart, like you can't get that love back. So I don't know. And then again, like, again, this song is like so personal to me. Um, but anyway, um, the guy, the, there's an English folk singer named Martin Carthy, and he taught Paul the song, and Paul did not credit it as a traditional song. And to be fair, they had kind of reworked it. It was very different from the original. Um, right. Interesting. Martin Carthy got really upset and would not talk to Simon for years. He was, and, and not, he, did, he, didn't want, he didn't want the credit. He wanted it to be credited as a traditional song. And I think right. that's interesting. Again, like it speaks to like a Paul Simon's kind of like touristiness of like immersing sure. himself in a place right. and then like <laughs> presenting this music as his yeah. own. And also like Paul Simon is a ambassador of uh, cultural appropriation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, he carries that theme on through his career. Right. And he continues to make millions. And also like, I think like the difference between American folk music and English folk music, like, the English folk movement was never as big and it never produced as many superstars, but there was a, a much deeper respect for the tradition of, of like that folk craft, which again, like most of the mm -hmm. songs that even a lot of the American singers were singing or rewriting and like Led Zeppelin stole so much like music from like not only African American blues musicians, but also like English folk musicians and did not yes. credit it. Like this is a whole topic in itself is like, like the thievery the the credit thievery and the like that went on in like folk and rock music in the 60s and again like i don't think it was all on purpose i think a lot of it was just like these were guys who were playing in a basement and then all of a sudden they had a hit and they blew up and they were like superstars and they didn't even know where they'd heard it or right. whatever but like and they just went mining for yeah IP. and it, and <laughs> i and like the whole thing of like intellectual property and this is where that sort of came into being and became like a, a whole thing yeah but yeah but i think how, I, it must have been so much easier to rip people off back then <laughs> exactly for i was sure. just about to say like, that. <laughs> yeah that was back when everything was kind of like the wild wild west so yeah, and anyway, so this song really was is like still to this day one of their best. And um, Garfunkel said he sort of considered the recording of Scarborough Fair was basically when they became producers because they were basically like constantly next to Roy Haley and helping and like giving suggestions and telling talking about how to mix the track and like really getting into like the nitty gritty of how they wanted it to sound because they basically from then on they would have Roy as their engineer, but they would produce their own sound, which is really, really interesting and like mm -hmm. very, very Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Sounds um, like they had like a, so much authority over like at least their their sound or their their record at that big time. time. And I mean, I For think that that's a testament to how singular their sound is and how you know a, a Simon and Garfunkel song when you hear it is they knew what they wanted. And I think that's mm -hmm. the key thing is that if you're going to be a guy like Paul Simon, 
you have to know what you want and you have to be able to communicate that to the people you're working with, even if they're just session musicians or whatever. And I think, I think to a certain extent, Paul Simon learned that from having to work with Garfunkel and yeah. what year was that, that the Rosemary time stage came out? 65. That was 65. Okay. So they're, they're becoming one of the like well-known oh, acts of the It didn't actually, this but no, this was 68 that they released okay, it as a yeah. single. Okay, but, so but they didn't yeah. release that single until two years after the album. This is like a really interesting thing is like the record industry was so totally different back then. Um, mm-hmm. And they were, they were, they were like so cemented already after um, their first couple albums that like they could do that. They could wait two years and drop a single, you know, and they right. would still get to number one. Yeah. So, Scarborough Fair is what attracts the attention of Mike Nichols, who's the director of The Graduate. And that was basically how they wrote um, Mrs. Robinson. He was like, hey, I want you guys to write for this movie that I'm doing, which is The Graduate. And were they supposed to score the whole soundtrack kind of thing? They did score the whole soundtrack. It wasn't released for years until after. But what happened was they basically were like, Paul Simon was already getting, getting gigs as like a songwriter. And Clive Davis, the head of uh, Columbia Records was sort of like getting frustrated because Paul was not a prolific writer. Like he wrote very slowly and he would take, not only do I think he had really bad writer's block, he would get in his head about it. It seems like, and then he would like panic about not having written anything and sort of like that would just lead to more writer's block. And I think Clive Davis sort of like pestering them for more music and pushing them to do more actually made that worse. Hmm. Um, but like, there's sort of like a bunch of stories of like Clive Davis is like lecturing them like he's their dad, and and Art Garfunkel, and then a producer named John Simon who's not related to Paul Simon. They recorded it in the studio, and then they played it back and recorded themselves making fun of it. <laughs> what? So, but anyway, Paul wrote a few songs. He wrote "Punky's Dilemma" and "Overs," which are both like songs he eventually released on his own. And Nichols is like, meh. And there's a bunch of stories about what happened with Mrs. Robinson, but Mrs. Robinson is, of course, the character's name in the movie of the the, the, the married woman that Dustin Hoffman is sleeping with. Right. Um, and is it The Graduate? The yeah, graduate, The Graduate. Right? Sorry. Great movie. You guys should watch it. Yeah. Um, yeah but I should. So it is good. The way Art tells the story is, oh, like Mrs. Robinson, um, we were just like writing this song about like a sort of like an America that was gone and like this sort of woman, the woman of like the sixties, the sort of like older woman who's sort of been inspired by the sixties, but is a trapped in this fifties life. And we were just using the name Mrs. Robinson because it fit. And then we kind of told Mike, like, well, we have a song called Mrs. Robinson. And he was like, what the fuck? Like, why didn't you guys fucking tell me that's the name of the character in the script? <laughs> Alternately, Paul Simon's story is that the original title was Mrs. Roosevelt. Yeah, because yeah, so like, <laughs> like, like, would not have the same ring. Well, and also like clearly that's a reference, right? But like, it's, it's levels, but like immediately dates and, and, and like, also like kind of like really makes the song seedier in a way. Like, and then, and then Nichols was like, "Well, we'll make it Mrs. Robinson," and he was like, "I don't want to change it." And Mike Nichols was like. I've got a fucking picture to make. Like, 
it's just such a like uh, i don't know it's the myth the, right. the myth of like the myth that Paul they... simon tells versus the myth that art Garfunkel tells right yeah and did they famously not even finish writing the lyrics to it that's why half the like there's yeah, a, they, there's they a basically like, they didn't want to write any more lyrics so they started and and then mike nichols was like that's fine yeah because that's such a like fascinating mix to me like as a person who um sort of like both thought about pursuing music and film before going into film and tv was like the the mesh of those two things is always like a really interesting and the way like the different the different sort of like peccadillos and like like hang-ups that musicians versus filmmakers often have yeah Imagine that so, kind of pressure, though, trying to score a movie that's already like oh shooting God. pretty much. That, <laughs> like, it's like, oh fuck, man, I gotta fucking write some movie. Like, that movie was made. That's like nobody makes movies like that anymore. Uh, yeah. I don't mean like the the movie itself. I mean the way the the way the graduate the way was, was made. made yeah. Like people don't make fucking make totally. movies in that fashion anymore. No. Um, so they they finished the graduate. Paul's still writing for other. Um, soundtracks none of them actually get made happens all the time this is where they really start to sort of like do their own thing like like they're kind Mm -hmm. of like they've got enough money now that they don't need to tour all the time Mm -hmm. this is this is this is getting late 60s early 70s Mm -hmm. so they release bookends in 68 which is sort of like i think the album where they're no longer really just simon and garfunkel there's sort of paul simon and art garfunkel and they come together and they stopped doing as many vocal harmonies. Although this song, the song off this album that I looked at specifically is America, which is another one that I think like escaped my attention for a long time. One of those really great songs that says a lot with very little, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, because it's not like, it's funny because it gets kind of used as like this pro-US, like like America, the, the land of the free, but it's really it's sort of critical of that in a very quiet way. It's not obviously critical of that, but like when you listen to it, there's a very strong, like, like sort of thing of like, well, what the fuck is America? Yeah. Almost like a lamentation. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of like the idea of like, of that sort of like, like, like kind of like almost like criticizing the rugged individualism and saying like, well, the, the, they've all gone to look for America as the chorus, and the, the first sort of ones are more like, look at all these people who've come together to find America. And then the last sentence is sort of like, well, then what, what makes me special for looking for America? You know, everyone's here looking for America. And, and I think both like, like acknowledging the, the connectedness and the great loneliness that like is like the individualism, the, both the, the individualism and the like, the weird the weird mix of like all the things that make america america right i don't right. know i just i think like i think i, I overlooked the song for a long time and now i really like it i think i think cool. and interestingly enough bernie sanders used it in his 2016 campaign interesting and what That's happened was he went to art garfunkel who was already a supporter and art was the one that convinced simon to do it and then oh, wow. Art said, I like Bernie. I like his fight. I like his dignity and his stance. I like this song. Which, like, pretty generic. I mean, I know, you know, Art Garfunkel's a rich guy. He doesn't need money. But I, no. the fact that he would even just say something, even this, like, kind of, like, generic, it's like, I like Bernie, 
for like a rich 60s liberal who like lives in new york is like really cool i think yeah in terms of absolutely like, as like, a liberal position it's as radical as you can get <laughs> while still I mean, being I think, within the and the fact that he, he went he not only yeah. like was like yeah i'll give permission for this he went to simon and was like look man i think we should do this and and like despite everything that happened between them essentially yeah. got simon to sign off on it which i don't know maybe simon that's... is also sympathetic and like they're both a they're both jewish they're both from new york so i think that's probably part of it but i think like they would have grown up in the time of like the, you know the new deal and all that stuff so like i don't think bernie is like again like this is the interesting thing is like to to people who grew up in that era bernie is is not radical <laughs> like like no. it's it was sort of really the 80s and stuff that uh, that's a whole other thing but i think like it's cool that both of them at least were like totally down to like let him let them use this song in the ad and sort of say those things about him so yeah, yeah that's that's pretty cool so yeah For so sure. then um this is also where they say both like the album sort of sprung them into superstardom like they it cemented them as like the guys right the guys yeah and it was also when paul started writing more and writing his own solo stuff and art became interested in acting especially because of mike nichols so Mm -hmm. mike nichols actually cast art in catch 22 and He was cast as Lieutenant Nately, who eventually got written out of the script. Um, I don't know if you guys have read Catch-22. It was kind of a a big novel for me when I was in high school. I should reread it. They did that movie. There's a movie that came. They just did a, they did a, I think it was like a limited series. I think like, it's a very like, it's an, it's an anti-war series. It's, it's very, it's, it's very very satirical. satirical and dark. And I think like, I, like I read that book when I was in like 10th grade or something. So when I was like, 17 so like clearly quite effective oh, I, you read it even earlier than i did um, a very unsentimental i think is the key um but anyway um yeah kind of just i couldn't even fully grasp it when i read it i should definitely reread it it's very good there's a sequel that i haven't read but um really it's the, by the same by what's his name joseph, joseph Keller, Keller, or whatever. Yeah. yeah it's called oh, closing yeah. closing time or something like that and it's about really? the main character from uh, Catch twenty two years later, Yosarian. Yosarian, yeah, yeah. Mm, no, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, very, very, um, like sort of a, a novel that uses the comedy to sort of hide the the darkness, the and, weakness of yes, and the weakness, <laughs> and yeah, and but also like the comedy that, that redeems itself in a way. So, so yeah. they're recording the album Bridge Over Troubled Water, which has the song Bridge Over Troubled Water. And Paul is just having trouble writing. Uh, according to Art, our way of working was for Paul to write while we recorded. So we'd be in the studio for the better part of two months working on the three or four songs that Paul had written, recording them, and when they were done, we'd knock off for a couple of months while Paul was working on the next group of three or four songs. Then we'd book time and be in the studio again for three or four months recording notes. Uh, and then so basically he, he started going off in the gaps and doing movies and stuff. Um, there's actually a documentary called The Harmony Game, which I haven't seen, but it's sort of like documents this whole thing. Mm. And yeah, they were definitely also, an interesting rhythm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like they were touring while they were doing this too. So I think this was really when they both just like like really got sick of each other. 
Um, I could see that. Simon, Simon's really getting into gospel music. Like I, I imagine like, it's just like anytime they need to be create, like their creative processes wrapped up in each other. Like Paul Simon writes bridge over troubled water, which some people think it's about a, a junkie. He has said repeatedly, it's about his, his ex-wife. Really? Um, yeah. Cause this, the line sail on silver girl is specifically a reference to her finding her first gray hair. That's what huh. he says anyway. I, yeah, I, I mean, like, okay. and like when I listen to it, I'm like, that makes sense. Like, I can see how people would interpret it as like a junkie thing, like Silver Girl being like a needle or something like that. But like, I don't buy it. Like, I think that song is really just about sort of like being there for someone when they're hurting and telling them you're going to be there. But right. like, yeah, that's kind of what I so interpreted. So that can be applied to like someone who's helping someone through an addiction, but. Yeah, so what happens sure. is Paul writes this song and he's like, no, no, you should sing the lead. Mm-hmm, and Garfunkel's yeah. like, no, I don't think I should. You should do yeah. it falsetto. And yeah. Simon is like, no, 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 you need to sing this song. Yeah. Simon's and like, then, I wrote this for you. So fucking Garfunkel sings the song. They tour with it. Simon gets jealous of Garfunkel performing this song. Because it's a, such a hit. Paul, yeah. he felt I should have done it. And many times on a stage, though, when I'd be sitting off to the side and Artie would be singing Bridge, people would stomp and cheer when it was over. And I would think, that's my song, man. <laughs> and like, I just, I think that's such oh, a, like, but that's like such a, like, I think like I always try and sum up like the, the sort of like, we talked about this of like the collaboration and like the yeah. weird, the weird, um, like psychological defense mechanisms people build around it and like psychological traps people get into with collaboration and, t- and, and, and a close relationship. And like, that's such a classic thing of like, he was like, no, you have to sing this. You have to sing this. And then as soon as Garfunkel did it, he was like, man, fuck you for singing this. <laughs> that's my song. Like, yeah. It's totally. yeah. And yeah, that yeah. was, that was oh. basically it. Like they sang that song. They ended the tour in Carnegie hall November 27th, I think like 73 or it might've been earlier than that. I can't remember. I didn't write down the year, which was stupid of me. Yeah. It probably would have been 73 or something. So they kind of went out. I think the thing is like, not every artist gets to go out on the highest note possible. And I think like these guys did, like, I think that's really like a testament to them. It's like, you know, like them and the Beatles and like a few other bands from this era, like they were the ones that like went out, doing their absolute best work together For and sure. they didn't make like a like i don't know I, i'm not going to name any bands that like you know like there are bands that like keep going and make just like drag it on yeah a few subpar works and like i think like as much as hard as it must be to quit while you're on top because it's always fucking hard to quit while you're on top even if you know you should because it's addicting to be on top like the, mm. the people that do it, whether it's intentional or not, like there's always sort of a mystique to them that propels them forward. And I think like it also means that like the thing that you most remember, the end, is like their best work. I think it's like the same thing yeah. with like Joss Whedon's Firefly. Like that show is remembered because it had 13 episodes and they were all good. Like right. it's just when yeah. you when you ha- like if that show had gone six seasons it would have been like another Star Trek at the time. It just would have had its mediocre episodes. And, and there were yeah. some, they had, they talked about like at a reunion panel, some of the episodes they had planned to do and they were fucking awful. <laughs> like right. they were just like, and it's just like, that's the thing is like, 
when you go out on a high note, you just build a mystique and you build like a power that really cements you in a way. For sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course you want to still have a career and you want to still maybe uh, work well, if you're, it's like, you're still in your time. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a difficult kind of uh, I mean, thing it's to like straddle. These guys were already like, they were making royalties, right? Like, Mm-hmm. They weren't broke in any way, as far as I can tell. There's never been any yeah. big stories about them being broke. That doesn't mean they weren't. Like for them, them, it might have just been like it, that. Could have been like a natural breaking point. For I don't them. think. Like, I don't think yes. they decided. I don't think they were like, we need to quit while we're on. Where while we're on top, like but it was just they obvious. were just like, we can't do this anymore. That yeah. was kind of the thing. For them. Yeah. So, yeah, it was almost I, a necessity, like for for either of their sanity and just the balance of. I think probably sure. their separate existences. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me a little bit. I've been watching uh, the Last Dance. Um, the yeah, Michael Jordan. Yeah, I gotta watch that. Like after viewing and Michael Jordan. After his first repeat, like you hear the reporters and stuff that were like covering at the time. They're like, Michael just looked dead. He looked so exhausted, and they understood why he walked away from like the game after that. Like, yeah. And it was just like, yeah, it, like at the height of at the height of your game, like in the prime of your sport, you're the biggest fucking star on the planet, and you're just gonna walk away from this all. Like, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. that's that's gotta be like tough. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, you leave that legacy behind you, and you just like become a legend after that well, sort of like, exactly. I think like similarly, like that was sort of like Michael Jordan was the peak of that machine, right? Like that machine of like sports superstars, like. I know there are still sports superstars, but they're sort of like siloed off in the world yeah. of sports. Like I was Jesus. not a sports fan yeah. and I knew who Michael Jordan same. was. Like, I think it same. was the same with a lot of these art, these sixties artists who'd gone on yeah. in the seventies. Like everybody knew who they were. It wasn't just like rock, like rock fans or folk fans that knew them. It was like yeah, they, the, the peak of the, the like sort of mania for that thing was happening at that time. And like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like, yeah, they were like the kind of the hype, whatever folk singers, and it was kind. Of, that was it was having a heyday, like yeah, in the late sixties, early seventies, even into the late seventies for sure. But I mean, the seventies yeah, were sort of when it became the excessiveness, right? Like, yeah, that was what gave birth to new wave and punk. Was it was sort of like you guys are fucking like like drunk kings that like chop people's heads off for no reason. Like we're the new lean mean robin hoods that are going to like knock you from your throne right and eventually they became that like i think that's what he became of like new wave and punk was like it became sort of the excess of the 80s and then the like the grotesque macho-ness of the 90s yeah. but like, i don't know that's just sort of like like capitalism like milking a thing too dry right so totally but yeah interesting what which you it said. does well i mean my section was kind of peppered throughout either of your guys's but you know I, f- I do feel like the way that they left the spotlight as a duo in their prime kind of also cemented like their dynamic the antagonism that they shared the maybe some of the creative tension without an outlet and they're just off in their own direction i i'm sure that that was positive for either of them to not have to work with each other and to almost like work to spite one another Um, in a way, even though, you know, I'm sure they have a respect for each other too. Um, From a retrospective angle through the media, which is how I viewed 
all of this and just having listened to your guys' sections, um, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because these are abs definitely two individuals who are kind of pitted against each other by history. <laughs> um, yeah. Dis despite having had such a productive and like glorious by and the wonderful Jewish media, it's, true. <laughs> it's almost like we want. It's almost like the media wants them to fight. It's yeah. like, it's like yeah. there's always a narrative around anyone who of becomes course. a star, right? And it's like once, like, yeah. The, like again, like I think we see a great, like you said, like Paul Simon sort of embraces it, and and Garfunkel like. He doesn't. He doesn't totally disown it and and become like a weird, like a total like recluse because he knows he has to sort of do that in order to control it. But he yeah. also like pushes against it where he can. Totally, he definitely grapples with it. Whereas I think Paul Simon just goes with it, and it takes him to amazing places. As you know, as matches his talent as well. Not that I don't know. I'm not sure. I think Garfunkel might be a little bit frustrated by not having the same platform that i think it's simon interesting had. because like he clearly right. did not have the post no. um breakup career that simon did but yeah. he like we also keep talking about how we don't like paul simon and we really like art garfunkel so and i think what that comes across as is he's sort of like just living his life and like i i'm sure he's yeah. had like fears and and doubts and like and felt inadequate compared to paul but like Honestly, like it feels like what he did after was basically eventually, if he didn't do it right away, he was like, you know what? I'm just gonna write my own ticket. I'm gonna do what I want, and he kind of did that. It seems like after their split, like definitely Paul Simon had the tools that set him up for a solo career. Like, although Ar Garfunkel, like definitely could and did make a solo career with his voice and and kind of his like a. Uh, his uh, compositions of music, like Paul Simon with his like songwriting, he could play guitar. He had, he also had like a good singing voice. Well, and he was a control freak who knew how to, knew how to push to get his own shit. Yeah. And he definitely had the drive. He was way more driven. I think. Yes. He, he was, he was a performer. He was an entertainer. Yeah. Um, and didn't have the same like angst. Yeah. Garfunkel um, had ways to make money too like he did he had a career as a teacher like he's a smart guy but yeah for sure for sure so yeah. um and based on the very limited lens that i looked at all of this through and the latter part of this individual's career um you know from bridge over troubled water which paul simon wrote and then basically insisted on garfunkel singing and then Garfunkel <laughs> rejecting him, and then Paul not accepting the rejection, and then <laughs> coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. later um, in an NPR interview, <clears throat> he uh, he says, "Well, I thought you didn't want to sing it because you didn't like it," and he was like, "Well," and they just you know they pit, they find whatever opportunity to kind of just pit themselves mm -hmm. against one another, even though as you. Uh, you know, as you detailed, Joe, this is their, this is like the pinnacle. This is the note that they went out on. And it is a grand note that's resonated. You know, this, this track of theirs amongst all of their hits. Which and also, still like, interestingly. They still can't help but over it. <laughs> and, and again, like, they're separated in it. Like, it's, it's, it's Paul Simon's song. He wrote it. It's Garfunkel yeah, yeah, singing. Exactly. And, like, it's the opposite of their early work, there's, which is them harmonizing. There. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's what and it's again, come to is like one of us does this and the other does this. 
and we talk about Separately. it. I don't mean to keep like interjecting, but like as mm-hmm. much as we like kind of like pissed on the fact that they sort of like rewrite their own story constantly, like it's worked. Like we're talking about it in that way of like that sort of like like we can't help but frame it as like Simon versus Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel then that that this like contentious duo because like it is That's I think the, the thing it's is like, presented to us. Any good narrative has to have that kernel of truth. And like the, obviously because it, like the whole story of Bridge of a Troubled Water makes it shows that there was more to their relationship than just like like pissing on each other. Like they clearly understood each other and they clearly were like but like there's sort of like we can't escape that narrative that they've built of like Simon and Garfunkel being this contentious duo. It's just the way right. everybody thinks of them. So of course we have to approach it. Right. And I think it almost uh, like is a self-fulfilling situation, right? Because there's nothing left. Simon and Garfunkel doesn't exist anymore. And they are individuals who no longer like that. That moment is gone. And so the only, the only words that you, the only content you can generate about that, despite the fact that his music continues to resonate and be popular and be something that you could probably get some pretty easy clicks or views or whatever off of, you know, it's conjecture and it's pitting. It's kind of the conflict that might is as contrived as it might be or whatever. And then when that's, when that's the context in which as an artist, as a retired artist or an artist who's moved on to something else, you're approached for an interview or whatever, and inevitably it comes up, it becomes a thing that you expect is a part of people's interest in you is your their interest in your perspective on this uh, counterpart in this situation and the conflict that is contrived or otherwise um, that, that, that that's actually making people pay attention to this article mm-hmm. um, and it's so interesting to see it that way but um, because we're conditioned by it right that's the that's the exposure that we see. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he made, he continued to, to sing. He wrote music in, in his, um, kind of third act. He pursued all sorts of uh, personal interests. He did have a damaged, um, vocal cord at one stage and I, and underwent surgery and in recovering, you know, was able to kind of find the discipline and, and, and condition himself to a better state and then used going, going back on tour and performing as like a, as a carrot on a stick for him to kind of lead him through his recovery. Um, went on walkabout, I believe across the continent yeah. of, of America. Um, and Japan. Kind of, and Japan. And other continents. Yeah. And other, and other, and other continents. Yeah. And, and then ended up writing a book or making a book out of his memoirs from the time, which is, I think, super interesting. Um, I, I had a, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say, I'm so interested in that. Like, I would definitely, like, like he's set for life. Like, I don't have to make music or anything. I'm just going to walk across continents. Yeah, well, and, like, and, and wrote yeah, a book of poetry eventually. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Just did, kind of like, did what he wanted, you know? Totally. Yeah. So totally. I'm, I'm all for, like, Garfunkel's way of life. That's yeah. so I think like yeah I think I know we kind of like this is a really big harping on in the Dave Arneson episode of like imagine what Dave could have accomplished if he didn't constantly have to pay the bills and fight with Gary over royalties but like like oh, imagine but, if everybody could yeah. live like fucking Garfunkel you know like oh my God, yeah yes. you, you have to work but you can kind of like yeah you can go on you can walk across the continent yeah. or you can like 
you can Imagine. do what? You can just be like, yeah, you know what? I, I did my four hours, like, you know, like Imagine. making sure Imagine. the AIs at the factory don't malfunction. Like, now I'm going to write poetry. Oh, I don't feel like Imagine writing poetry anymore. All- Imagine we were all turtles who could photosynthesize. We all have our shelter with us, and we could just like absorb the sun. Imagine if we were god kings of a golden empire that we could all just you know sit and think and philosophize, but also fight and fuck and do all these things. Like it would be, it would be wonderful. It would be wonderful. You speaking my language? (laughs) Yeah, we. I mean, we could at least work towards that, right? I, mean, yeah. I, I feel I feel like we could probably do better than how we've arranged everything. Yeah, I don't mean to like turn this into the like the, <laughs> the Joe Stillwell communism hour, but I just I just I look at like I look at the like I, I just look at the way like people like our Garfunkel live, and I'm like, yeah, no, people yeah. would not. People who have have like their lives provided for them will not become lazy suckers. They might not produce something every fucking week. But they'll they'll continue to have interests and do stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and do stuff that isn't necessarily like like advancing the human condition or like making yeah, yeah. people more comfortable, but like just exploring themselves or like exploring like, the thing that inspires that person to do that exactly, thing. Exactly right. Yeah. So no, sorry. It's a, yeah, it's a really good point. No, there's nothing to apologize for. Um, I completely agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Didn't he get arrested for marijuana twice too? Twice. Yeah, man. Garfunkel loves the stinky icky. <laughs> the funky <Sorry>. icky. <laughs> the gookie wookie. <laughs> Part of my favorite thing about um, Art Garfunkel as well is Gar. In his Gar, name, yeah. Gar. Gar. Like, Gar. that is such a, such a great prefix. I don't know, it's just three letters, Gar. Garlic, Garfunkel. Garfield, these are these are things, uh, these are things that are good. If you're a Transformers fan, <laughs> Rekdar, the, the Jerkion. Oh my god. Who's played by yeah. Eric Idle in the movie? Oh, and really? Run around to the theme song Dare to Be Stupid yeah. by Weird Adam. Yeah. <laughs> you talk TV, we talk TV. <laughs> oh. Do Ron Ronnie. <laughs> fascinating cultural document so uh, yeah craig sorry i no no i i really don't have tons more um i had a few those were kind of the main observations that i had the dynamic was really interesting to view through the perspective of you know like there is a tele it was a daily telegraph article that was kind of like the definitive like folk musician beef throwdown between simon and garfunkel but it's behind a paywall so i didn't pay to read it <laughs> can you just yeah. can you just incognito tab it i no i tried that oh, and it, cho- it shut me down it shut you me go. down hey. but it, it was supposedly a pretty good one um because there's articles about that article but if they anyone don't has really... the daily telegraph paywall we will <laughs> uh we will be eternally grateful if you screen cap for us that's all we're saying but, but i i also want I wanted to mention a reflection just on the media. I mean, I already brought it up, but just on the media and the way it's manipulated and also just kind of like utilized. I think people build their careers based on, you know, good PR and hype. And then also how that turns against people. And Wes, you mentioned the 
um, the Bulls documentary. And that's definitely a case, you know, MJ, one of the biggest superstars ever. And then the media kind of turned against him in a way that didn't yeah. fall, didn't really land when, with him. When you're I mean, on top for too long, it's like the media almost wants to tear you down. Oh, and it's yeah. Yeah. enormous to yeah. And and leaving on top and all that is a good move, is a practical move in that sense. Um, but if you're but still it's seeking so hard. It's so hard, especially yeah. like if you don't if you don't feel like A, if you're addicted to the fame of it all, like if the fame is more important, then you will take that role as heel because the fame is what's important. Whereas right. like I think like that was the thing about like Simon and Garfunkel, like as much as Simon is this performer, like it's all in service to getting his music out there i think like really like like yeah and and he he yeah it's just like it's fascinating to, to see that they went out on this front and like that they 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 didn't live long enough to be see themselves become the villains but they kind of but they did in their own separate way and they were both like i don't know i, I lost my original point mm-hmm. but, well, yeah, no but really, one of them one of them pursued it i think very wholeheartedly and openly and unapologetically and the other i think didn't and did did his own thing but also grappled maybe had demons uh, you know like the temptation was always there but then with this temptation there would always be this framing of it in relation to paul simon well and especially because he was already the the second banana the guy who made this podcast after right Right. or like like garfunkel and oates is like that that comedy folk duo yeah they named themselves after like the biggest second second bananas bananas. in music and like it's just like he could never like no matter what he did with through no fault of his own and not because he wanted to he could not escape Paul Simon's trajectory. No matter, so he yes. either had to ex- embrace it yeah. or reject it. Haunted him. it you know, yeah. Yes. So in this definitive moment, I would say in um, in exploring this for this episode, a quote, and I'm not going to, ha- I don't have it verbatim, but a quote is basically along the lines of the NPR host saying, "The top echelons of music in history." Open opens the sentence with that, and Art just steps in. He says, "Am I there? I'd like to think I am." And just kind of goes off in his own like insecure, like little tangent. And then the host kind of goes, "Yes, well." <laughs> and I was just like, "Wow! Like this is this is it. This is this is this person's relationship. Like, yes, of course you're there, and yet you're clearly not." You, you clearly don't feel as though you are. I mean, that's and so, that's it, so speaks it's to just, just, said, it said so much to me. It so speaks <laughs> to, to like the, the precarity of success at all of like, even when you have success, it's never, it's never like, you're always going to at some, on some level doubt it. You know, you're always oh, going to have that no matter how, or you're going to become like a fucking egomaniac who, who just, no matter how far you, far you fall, into that absolute heel role. Like, I don't think Simon has completely gone that way, but like, he's definitely more so than Art clearly like sort of like believes, you know, justifiably or not that he is sort of this artistic genius. Um, but but still probably to a certain extent has doubts of like, will they, you know, and and nobody's going to remember you when, when the bright core of the universe burns out in the heat and all atoms fall silent. But like, 
You know, like if you're that kind of person that what? chases, <laughs> not you, Craig, not you, everybody else. Well, that's, but not well you. that's what I signed up for. So yeah. my manager's got some explaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll have this next time we have a we have a client manager meeting. I will discuss this with you. Sorry, um, I, I signed on I, for Universe 2.0. So. <laughs> Greg, once you hit OTA, you survive the heat death. Of oh the my universe. god, we need to do an OTA update. Okay, um, ring us, guys. Uh, I just want to say this has been super fun. I think thanks, guys, for doing this. This was really great, and we're obviously still in quarantine. I should say, if people are wondering why the sound quality is less than usual, we're going to keep doing it. I think, and uh, yeah, thank you for you listening. Can't stop us. <laughs> you can't. Thanks for being a part of this ride. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so. Um, uh stay tuned our next episode we don't even know what it's going to be yet i don't think but we'll figure that out yeah it'll um, be good we talked about maybe doing some more mini minisodes where it was more just we didn't do a bunch of research and we just discussed and maybe we'll do full episodes we don't know yet that we're, might be good for the core we're saucy though. Yeah. the core yeah, yeah. We, could just, we, could just, we could do some shorter shorter format yeah. episodes yeah the core maybe and, i feel uh, like that would be pretty good yeah let's try it out so stay tuned and um i think uh, just so you know, you can find me. I'm at Stop Joe now on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me. Uh, I have a new Twitter handle. I'm now at uh, W2Dubs at Twitter. Still at Wes Walcott on Instagram. And you can't find me, but yeah, Craig's but still on Craig will find you. <laughs> Craig Eventually. is dialed in to the Twitter discourse. So, um, and uh, of course, you can find Second Bananas is on Instagram. And Twitter, it's at two bananas pod with the number two. And uh, mm. you can also email us uh, second bananas pod at gmail.com if you have any questions or you want to comment. Like, we, we want to hear from you. So please do. If you're thinking, like, nah, they probably don't want to hear from me, no, we really want to hear from you. Um, we're very interested in what other people think. It's um, true. On these subjects, especially people who have their own interests or expertise. And, um, we're just this is a podcast about digging in so yeah let's dig in let us know and, what you um, want to hear it maybe we can let you hear it yeah and and you know maybe we'll have guests on in the future we don't know we're just we're swinging wild yeah, yeah. watch it so yeah i am uh, again i'm joe stillwell Quest walcott right here craig blanchard and uh this has been second bananas and thank you so much thanks for joining goodbye thanks See you next time. Everyone is Jonas is a live-streamed competitive role-playing podcast hosted by me, Doug Vandalay. Me, Eric Ivanovich. And me, Talia Murdoch. On twitch.tv forward slash cavegoblins every Monday at 7.30 p.m. PST. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.